0: scripture reading for the sermon is found in Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Father in heaven, as we approach now your word from this Remarkable work pinned by your servant Moses being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This your very word for your people at this moment in time. We would ask Lord that you would grant to us ears to hear. Hearts to believe and wills to obey. That we would read and that we would mark and that we would learn and even inwardly digest. All that you would have us to believe and know. Most of all, that we would see Christ and that we would follow him in love for him, serving him all the days of our lives. Would you hear this prayer? And in accordance to your knowledge of every heart in this room, would you answer it? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the opening of our service uh, this morning that we are starting a brand new series in this wonderful book of, of Exodus, and it's appropriate in the beginning of a new series to ask the question, why this book? Why are we studying the book of Exodus? Some of you are actually thinking to yourself, you know, I just don't know what Exodus has to do with my life. It was so long ago. It was fantastic and miraculous. My life feels anything but fantastic and miraculous. And and as I go through life, I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other. I'm trying to figure things out. Why would we study some ancient Near Eastern epic story? What bearing does this story have actually on my own Life. Well, I think there's uh, lots of ways to answer that, but maybe the best way to answer that is that the book of Exodus actually, in a wonderful way, is going to get you out of your life. And it's going to show you such a vision of the power and the glory of who God is that you might, for a wonderful second, forget yourself and fall in love with God. That's our prayer as we enter into the story of Exodus is that we wouldn't be coming to church with just the question, man, I hope I have something for my life this day. Though I do pray that God speaks very deeply and profoundly into your life. But that you would walk away and the answer would be that I was welcomed this day into God's life. And I am forevermore changed. That's a fundamentally different question, isn't it? And a fundamentally different way to read the scripture. As I was asking even last night, my own family in preparation for our time together in the book of Exodus. Asking them who is the lead character of the book of Exodus. Because we will look at various times at the literature of the book of Exodus and try to helpfully understand this um, incredible tale. And I heard Moses, appropriately so. That's probably what pops up in your own mind. And I said, good guess. You're wrong. The lead character is God. God. You know, the lead character is always God. You know that. It's always God. He's the one writing this story. He's the author of it, but in a fantastic and beautiful way, he has written himself into every word of it. He is not only its author, but he is its lead character. And we will see him on display powerfully in the book of Exodus, which I do believe might actually bring healing, strength, and power, and direction, and freedom into your life in a way that would be very surprising why exodus well I'm actually gonna tell you four things I can say more you know I can say more but I'm gonna tell you four things well One is, here at Cornerstone, we love to balance our teaching of the Scriptures between Old and New Testaments. We have just finished actually a very long series in the book of, of Mark. We spent a few uh, weeks in Isaiah during the Advent season. We started the year in Proverbs, being guided by wisdom. It's time now for a lengthier study In one of the more foundational books and love to move between the Old and New Testament. And so want the balanced diet of what the Apostle Paul calls the whole counsel of God. That's what we're seeking to do. That's number one. Number two is that Exodus of all the books of the Scriptures is foundational to understanding the whole of the Bible. Uh, A lot of you are new to Cornerstone. Many of you uh, fairly recent in our body. Uh, coming from a variety of different backgrounds, it's one of the things I love about being a part of this local church. Is a lot of different traditions and backgrounds in in this uh, fellowship, which means that we've read the Bible in a variety of different ways over the course of our life and growing up, maybe in the faith or newly coming to the faith, as some of you are. How is it that you can understand and read the Bible? Well, Exodus is a wonderful book to teach you how to read the Bible and what's foundational in the whole of the Bible. And I think now is an appropriate time uh, to address uh, this book from that angle. Thirdly, there's nowhere in the Old Testament do we see the salvation of God more clearly presented than in the book of Exodus. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we see it more clearly than in the book of, of Exodus. In fact, er, Exodus becomes, and this you'll hear this throughout the series, it becomes the paradigm for salvation throughout the whole of the Bible. The paradigm. When you were to ask an Israelite about the salvation of God, they would have told you about the Exodus. That would have been how they would have referenced the salvation of God. And I think I'll even make a case for that if we get there that far this morning in in this message. But fourthly and finally, uh, the book of Exodus has themes that are timely for us as a local congregation in the cultural context in which the Lord has put us here in North America. Some of the themes like the power of God, the providence of God, themes like facing trials, living in an antagonistic culture, having a pilgrim mentality, learning to trust God in crisis. These kinds of matters are all over the book of Exodus. And the people of God are always having to go to a place where they're trusting God to provide. And we need that as the people of God where we are even right now, personally in our own lives, but corporately as a body, as we set our hearts towards what the Lord has for a cornerstone in the days ahead. And so as we begin this study of Exodus together, I want you to think of those things. This is a steady diet of Old and New Testament foundational to the understanding of the whole of the Bible is the book of Exodus. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we see the salvation of our God more clearly on display. And the themes of Exodus are timely, pastorally, I think, ministerially, for us as a congregation, both in terms of where we are as a church, but also because of where we are in the culture. Now, I want to ask a question that I know is actually burning on the minds of each and every one of you. How long? You already know it. I did not even said it yet, and you already know it. How long are we going to be in the book of Exodus? I've already been asked that twice this morning. <laughs> How long are we going to be in the book of Exodus? Well, I was reminded of that progressive commercial. You know these progressive commercials where you're becoming like, so one of you knows it, <laughs> where you are becoming like your parents, right? You know these, these commercials. Everybody know these commercials, and they're really, they're really funny, right? There's the one about the football game. You remember the one about the football game? They're tailgating, it's, it's really great. They're all talking about the parking. Oh, it's so good we parked here because we were able to get out really quick. around The commercial concludes with, hey, are we still thinking about leaving in the third quarter, right? You remember that, remember that question? And the response is, let's not talk about leaving the game before we're at the game. That translates. Let's not talk about ending Exodus until we begin it, okay? Let's just try to begin it, and then we'll get there. It's also another way of saying to you, I have no idea how long we're going to (laughs) be in this book of Exodus, but if the plan actually holds true, we will be, by the end of June around chapter 15, which is the song of Moses. They've just come through the waters of the Red Sea and now they give praise to the Lord on the banks of the Red Sea. We'll probably be there. We're going to take a break during the month of July and then we're going to come back to the book. So it's like a breather in July. And we'll come back to Exodus in August and by the time Advent rolls around in 2022, I hope to be at the end of Exodus. So my hope is that this is a year of Exodus. Now, stay tuned. We'll see how that goes. Now, for this morning, as we're looking at these first eight verses, because you're like, oh, he's only doing eight verses as we begin. It's going to be forever. Um, This is really an introductory message, which is slightly different from how I often uh, address issues and books and texts with us this morning. So I'm going to kind of be all over the place just a little bit to try to string together a knowledge of the book of Exodus um, so that you can approach this book in such a way where you can go, okay, I think I have a handle on it and can read it appropriately. And so along those lines, I want you to have two words in your mind. As we approach these first eight verses, we'll primarily be in the first seven of these verses. And the two words are continuation, that's word number one, and the second word is culmination. Those are the two words I want you to have in mind. Exodus is a continuation of the redemptive story that started in the book of Genesis. It's not really a new book or a new story. It's a continuation of the story that we've already begun in the book of Genesis. And some of you are here for that very brief study in the book of Genesis that we had uh, a couple of years ago. And so it's appropriate that we pick up some of those threads and carry them forward now before all of that information has escaped from your mind. Exodus is a continuation of the redemptive story that started in Genesis. And secondly, Exodus foreshadows the culmination of the redemptive story that's fulfilled in Christ's coming. Exodus is foreshadows the culmination of the redemptive story, the completion, that's a fancy word for completion, bringing it to fullness, of the redemptive story that's fulfilled in Christ's coming. If you hold those two things in mind, I think that'll keep you uh, rooted throughout the rest of our time together this morning. So let's start with this continuation. Uh, if you'll notice... Uh, You know, just look at the table of contents in your Bible. Exodus is the second book uh, of the Old Testament. But it's important to note that Exodus is a part of a five-book series known as the Pentateuch. All right, the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament. In fact, the word Pentateuch means book of five, book of five. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call them the writings of Moses. They're attributed to Moses. And Exodus is sort of like, you know, depending on how you number the chronicles of Narnia, you know, or, or right, in the, right? There's debates about that. Um, Exodus is the Prince Caspian of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's book two among some people's understanding of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's book two in this five-part series, which means that it's better to approach Exodus as an installment rather than a separate book. It's better to understand it that way. If you don't understand it that way, you're actually sort of sort of cutting off some knowledge and awareness of this particular book that I think will enrich it for you. As we study it together. In fact, that's one of the reasons the book of Exodus begins with the word and. Look there in Exodus 1. 1, 1-1. And you don't see the word and as the first word, do you? You see, these are the names of the sons of Israel. And yet, in the Hebrew, if we were literally translating... Uh, from the Hebrew, verse 1, it would read, and these are the names. Now, why does it not have and at the beginning of verse 1? Well, this is an English translation, and all of our grammar Nazis in the world would be deeply unsettled by the beginning of a sentence with an and, and also the beginning of a book with and. And yet, just note this, grammar Nazis, God does not have this issue he has, uh, he has started the book of Exodus with an and. Now, what's he trying to say to you? Why would you use a conjunction as a beginning? What does a conjunction do? It links something that has come before. Exodus does not understand itself as a new book. It is the continuation of the book of Genesis. And these are the names. These are the names. Now, notice in addition to that, That how the book begins with is is a list of names. And these are the names. Now, you'll remember this from your study in Genesis, right? That Genesis is structured around 10 genealogies. 10 genealogies. If you were to look at the structure of Genesis, you will see something like, and these are the names, or literally, these are the generations of Abraham. And then you'll have a list of Abraham's descendants. And then what will we have? A story. And then these are the generations of of Isaac. And then these are the generations of, of Jacob. And in between those genealogies, what we have, long narrative sections that tell the story of those people. That's how Genesis is actually structured. When Exodus says, these are the names, it's saying, we're still doing that. We're still doing what Genesis did. We're still tracing these people. And specifically the names that are listed here and what are those names? Well, it's the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how this whole begins, which is the latter half of the book of Genesis. Specifically the section from Jacob all the way through Joseph to the end of chapter fifty. In Genesis. And so each of these names are actually speaking to the history of uh, the, the book of Genesis. And it's pulling the thread forward from what it is you've already learned in Genesis. We're gonna carry this family lineage that started out with one man by the name of Abraham. We read about him in Genesis 12 earlier in our service. Started out with this one man named Abraham who has one child named Isaac, who winds up having a few more children, that gets to Jacob, who has 12, and now how many people do we have as they're in Egypt? Seventy. So we've become a family, a rather large family, by the way, by the end of the book of Genesis at the advent of the book of Exodus. It's showing us that the Lord is pulling the thread of the lineage of the promises that he made to Abraham all the way through into this upcoming story into Egypt. And it's really important to recognize that everybody who would have read the book of Exodus when it was written actually came from these people. They were like reading their family history. You and I don't approach the Bible thinking that way, though we actually ought to. Spiritually, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. So I want to encourage you to read this as if these are your brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and cousins and distant aunts and uncles. And we've got some weird uncles when we look in Genesis and Exodus, no doubt about it. When we look back at this history, you should consider it your spiritual lineage. That would have been the very mentality of the people of Israel as they approached the book of Exodus. They're reading about their ancestors. And so we see very clearly that this book is about continuation. It would have especially rung true for the people who are initially listening to the book of Exodus when they read that name Joseph. And it says, and he was already in Egypt. Yeah, that's one way to say it. Uh, that's That's quite a story. How it is that he actually got to Egypt. It's immediately triggering our minds and our imaginations to go back and remember the journey that it took Joseph to get all the way to Egypt because we've got to understand how the people got here. How did they get in Egypt? Well, it was through this guy named Joseph. You'll remember that he had grandiose dreams dreams about his father and his mother and his brothers bowing down to him. And then he thought it was a great idea to tell them those dreams. And then his brothers did not take very kindly to those dreams. And ultimately, at a point of vulnerability, when he was in the field, they captured him and they sold him into slavery to travelers who made their way all the way to Egypt. He ultimately was a part of Potiphar's house. You remember that as he served Potiphar, but then came into the situation with Potiphar's wife where she was trying to seduce him. And in his faithfulness, he resisted but got thrown in prison. And while he was in prison, he met the cupbearer and the baker of of the king. And he interpreted their dreams. One was a positive interpretation. One was a negative interpretation. But later, Pharaoh has dreams himself. And while Joseph is there in the the dungeon of Egypt, he is called out. Out of that place to interpret Pharaoh's dreams of these seven cows that are plump and then these seven cows that are malnourished and all the details. Seven years of plenty leading to seven years of famine. And all of a sudden this Once thrown in prison, exiled, uh, you know, criminal in Israel becomes the right-hand man to Pharaoh because he's wiser than all of Pharaoh's wise men. And before the end of the book of Genesis, we're seeing... Joseph's own family, Jacob and his brothers, ending up in Egypt because they're dying of starvation. They've got to find food. And only God used Joseph in order to provide for the family to keep the lineage of the promised seed alive. Who is that promised seed and that promised line? Well, if you'll look there in verse 2, it's that name, Judah. Judah. That's going to be the line from which Jesus Christ actually comes. Apart from Joseph ending up in Egypt through all those twists and turns, through the provision of food during a time of famine and starvation, Judah ultimately dies and the seed from which Jesus would come is compromised. It shows us that the Bible's telling us a theological history tracing the lineage for redemption. And Exodus is right at the heart of that. In the midst of all of the ill intent towards Joseph, God meant all of these things for good, right? We're told at the very end of the book of Exodus. So you can see that thread being pulled through. Well, I don't want to stop yet. I want you to see one more thing. Verse seven. Notice what's happened. That generation of Joseph and all of his brothers and those 70 people, they're gone. They've gone the way of all the earth. That's what happens to all of us. But it's not the end of the story. Look at what happened. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Oh, they started out as 70 people in that little um, nugget of land called Goshen, a fertile place that was carved out for them. And now they are a multitude beyond numbering. They are a people in a few hundred years. And that's what's happened when we turn the page from Genesis to Exodus. You got to remember, we think of it as well, that was yesterday's Bible reading. This is today's Bible reading. But that was hundreds of years between these two books in terms of their history. Hundreds of years removed now, the people of Israel are an incredible multitude. And notice the way that verse 7 reads. It actually kind of feels, well, hyperbolic and superfluous in the way that it reads in verse 7. Notice the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. You're like, okay, I, I get it. I mean, like that's a lot of words to describe they're a big group of people now. But there's something really important about those words, right? The Bible's very intentional in the way that it communicates. Do you notice the language fruitful and multiply? Have you seen that somewhere else? If you are a reader in the ancient near east, you're going, that sounds like Genesis 1:27 and 28. That what God had originally charged man to do is now being fulfilled through these people. In fact, God's people have become so great, we're going to see in the next passage, that Pharaoh, who is, who is uh, king over the greatest nation in the ancient Near East at the time, is fearful of them. They've become so many of them. We are seeing the, the very picture of what man was created to be being fulfilled now in the, redemptive, uh, the redemption of God's people, Israel. But not only are we seeing that, we also read Genesis chapter 12, didn't we? That Abraham was told he would become a great nation. And he would become a a, a people so large in in Genesis 15 that God takes him out into the night sky. And you can imagine no light distortion as we experience here in the ancient Near East on a clear night. You would have seen stars that you've never seen. And God has him look up to the sky and he says, if you can number the stars in the sky, so shall your offspring be. Do you know what Exodus 1-7 is telling us? God has been faithful. God has been faithful. It's actually telling us in a really um, Hebrew way. What do I mean by that? Notice how many words it uses to describe their fullness. They were fruitful, increased, increased greatly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly strong. How many fingers am I holding up? How many people came to Egypt? 70. It was a full family by the time they arrived in Egypt, but now it's a full nation. In seven hyperbolic, large terms, the Hebrew writer Moses here is communicating to us, they are now a nation. And that's what we're going to see throughout the book of of, of Exodus. This person, Abraham, became a family and is going to become a nation, who ultimately at Mount Sinai will get a constitution, and a moral code, and all kinds of things. And eventually, where are they going to go? To a land. Because every nation's got to have a land. And that's the part of the promise we haven't yet seen. Notice at the opening of the book of Exodus, we've seen the promise of a nation, of many seed. But what part of the promise have we not seen? The promise for a land. What's the book of Exodus ultimately going to be about? These people had got to get out of Exodus. Because God's got for them a land. He's he's remaining true to his promises. He is the one that is being uh, faithful. But as you see clearly in uh, the scriptures here, this is all being done by the hand of God. The power and the providence of God is on high relief as we look into the book uh, of Exodus together. Now, Not only, though, do we see this continuation and the picking up of the threads of the book of Genesis, we also see the theme of culmination here. The theme of culmination. But we're already seeing it being fulfilled, but it's more fulfillment coming. But as we read through the Scriptures, and it would be an incredible study... To actually go book by book from Leviticus all the way to Malachi and then start in the New Testament to go through and to see how many times Exodus is referenced as a theme or as a motif. Like for instance, when water is referred to from a rock or a rock is talked about or manna is talked about or wilderness is talked about or Sinai is talked about or the law is discussed or all the things. You would find that almost on every page of the Bible, you're like, that's everywhere. Terms like redemption don't show up till Exodus. Terms like deliverance. Don't show up till Exodus. These are common language for the way that we talk about salvation. But all of this is rooted in what God does here in the book of Exodus. That would be a wonderful study. That would take us, well, till 2 p.m. this afternoon if we were going to do that. I want to just look at the book of Matthew. I thought it'd be nice. Why don't we jump to the beginning of the New Testament to say, how actually does the book of Exodus pattern for us the redemption that culminates? In the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew is one of the best places to turn because the opening of Matthew, who is speaking primarily to what audience? A Hebrew audience. He's speaking to Hebrews who know these stories, have been told these stories as kids. He tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually come to us as a new and better Moses. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is actually the ultimate culmination or fulfillment of what is prefigured or foreshadowed in the Exodus. Now, where am I getting that? Well, you all have pew Bibles in in front of you. I want you to take them out or to grab the one that's there beside you. And I will tolerate your phones if you get those out. That's totally fine. Just be careful. You know, there's a new Wordle out there today and I don't want you to get distracted, okay? So go to Matthew chapter 1 and let's notice some things. You should always do this when you're looking at a book. Thumb through it, get a sense of its architecture and its design. We're not going to read through the book of Matthew, but what do you notice first about chapter 1 in Matthew? Genealogy, isn't that interesting? Starts with a bunch of names bunch of names that actually come out of Genesis through the book of Exodus. Sort of telling us something about the nature of the beginning of the New Testament and its unfolding. Notice in Matthew chapter 2 now, after the birth of Jesus, that the wise men come. And when the wise men come, they pass by Herod, don't they? They have to see Herod on their way in. And they talk to Herod about this king that's been born in his realm. And his ears get perked. He goes, king, there's a king in my realm? There's a king that was born in my realm. I'd love to learn more about this king in my realm. And the wise men, very shrewdly, I mean, they're wise men, they picked up on the theme of the fact that he had murderous and ill intent. They did not want to share with him any more about this particular king. And so we find that the wise men go back to the east after having visited Jesus. And they go back another way and they don't talk to Herod. Herod realizes that he's been routed, so to speak. And he ultimately goes on a murderous rampage and begins to kill all the children in and around Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Where does Jesus go to be saved? Egypt. Where did, where, where did the brothers go in, Gen- in the end of Genesis to be saved egypt for hosea prophesied that out of egypt my son will be saved hosea prophesied that now now look at the next chapter where does jesus go after he leaves egypt well we have the narrative of his baptism i, I want you to hear this we have him passing through waters we have him passing through waters. You should have the Red Sea in your mind right now. When the people of Israel come out of Egypt, they pass through the Red Sea. It's the means of their redemption. Jesus is coming out of Egypt and he immediately enters the waters of baptism. Now, some of you are saying, Nate, listen, there's sometimes I can go with you in these biblical jumps that you make, but now I'm a little concerned that you're playing some biblical tic-tac-toe, where these things don't actually work. You, if you have that thought, praise the Lord for you because you actually care about the Bible, but you're wrong. <laughs> I mean that with all the love that's in my heart. 1 Corinthians actually tells us that that connection is supposed to be made. Note this, we won't turn there. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 4. Notice what Paul says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. What's he speaking about? Being led by the cloud in the wilderness and passed through the sea. What's he talking about? The Red Sea. Our fathers have all done that. And we all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. Now some of you are going, how is that a baptism? We'll get there. We'll get there. But the connection between the passing of the Red Sea as an Old Testament baptism picture and Jesus as passing through the waters coming out of Egypt as a New Testament fulfillment of that picture is indisputable biblically. That's how the Bible readers read it. So, not quite as a leap as you you thought. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, where does Jesus go after he comes out of the waters? To the wilderness. How long does he stay there? 40 days. Remind you of anything? Remind you of anything in Exodus by chance? It could be that he is being pictured as a new Moses here. What happens after he leaves the wilderness? Matthew 5. He goes up where? On a mountain? You know, you remember anything about a mountain in Exodus? This thing called Mount Sinai. What was given at Mount Sinai? The law. What does Jesus preach on in the Sermon of the Mount? The law? What's Matthew telling us? That Jesus is come to bring an Exodus. He's come to bring an Exodus. He's a better Moses than the Moses that we look to for the Exodus. Now, again, you might say to yourself, that feels like a little bit of a jump. Okay, I'll keep keep going there with you. Luke chapter 9 tells us about another mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, some of you were here for the study of Luke that we had, oh, I don't know, a million years ago when we studied uh, the book of Luke. But you'll remember in the Transfiguration how Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he is... Prefigured in glory before them. Now, I'd like to argue that something of Exodus 34 is going on there. And you'll remember the shining face of Moses and all the stuff that's going on. But that aside, I don't even charge you for that. That's just a little extra. In the Mount of Transfiguration, who's there with Jesus? Elijah and Moses. The two figures of the Old Testament that actually cross seas. Both of them do that. In and outside of the land of of promise. It says that they're talking with one another, which I just think is awesome. You know, it's like, man, it's good to see you, right? Like Jesus and Moses and Elijah. But it actually tells us, you go, man, I'd love to know what they're talking about. It tells us what they're talking about. It says that they are talking to Jesus about his coming departure in Jerusalem. And we go, oh, okay. Because he's going to be ascended to the Father. And he's going to go, you know, he's going to depart. Well, that'd be great unless you know that the Greek word for departure is exodus. His coming exodus in Jerusalem. His coming exodus. Well, that's what's happening on the cross and in the resurrection. You you, you see, when you look through the scriptures, you begin to see that there are themes that are being drawn out. And the Bible is put together not by human hands, but by a divine author who has his fingerprints on it all. I mean, think about it. Think of how our story as we go back to the cross and the resurrection is really a redemptive story of the exodus. Uh, Let me just make this point from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You you know Deuteronomy chapter 6. A lot of you in this room, a lot of parents in this room know Deuteronomy chapter 6 because it's where we're told how to train up our children in the Old Testament, right? We're actually told in in Deuteronomy 6 verse 20, when your son asks you in time, or daughter asks you in time, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? What's the meaning of all this stuff? Now just think of yourself as a, as a young boy or a young girl. You're, you're, you know, you're nine, 10, 11 years old, to the point where you're like, "Why do we go to church like, I mean, we do this every week. It's the same stuff. Um, and there's all these commands that are given. like, "Why? Why do we do all of these things?" And, and here's, here's what Moses says to, to say to them. Say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. We saw it. And he brought us out from there. Exodus. That he might bring us in and give us a land that he swore to our fathers. And thus, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. To fear the Lord our God for our good always. That he might preserve us alive just as we are to this day. Now, what, what he's doing in that moment is he's saying, go back and tell them your redemption. Go back and tell them the story of salvation. We were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out with a mighty right hand, with signs and wonders. And he's brought us to a new land. And he has given us these statues. And he's called us into worship so that we would fear the Lord and that we might be preserved even as we are unto this day. Now, let me ask you. When your son or your daughter who comes to you and says, why do we go to church? Why do we have to attend to worship and listen to this guy go on and on and on? I don't even know what he's saying half the time. And hopefully you say, hopefully you say, we were once enslaved. We were once enslaved by the power of sin. We were destined for judgment. But in the love of God, He sent forth His Son to lead us out. He lived a perfect life for us. He took the penalty of our sin in our place. He received the judgment that we deserve to break that power of sin and death and to win for us the righteousness that we need so that we might go to a new land. And live forever with him in the presence of the Lord. That's why we go to worship. That's why we follow the commands. That's why we do the statutes. That we would fear the Lord and love him. That we might go well with us and stay alive even as we are to this day. Now all of a sudden you're not saying anything different than the people of Israel. Thousands of years ago. Now the gospel has been fulfilled in the richest way imaginable through the new Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who were there in the days of the Exodus who saw the great signs and wonders were actually saved by the same gospel. In the time in which the gospel was received for them through the signs and the figures, through the types and the pictures, we now know in the substance... That Moses was never really Moses. But Moses, the liberator of the people of Israel, was a picture of the liberator of God's people everywhere. From every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. To the people who are called the very Israel of God, even you. Through the hands of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now, I trust that as we look at that together, maybe I've answered the question, why Exodus? Why Exodus? And I hope that just that taste of the book of Exodus today makes you want to read your Bible and study this book and go in deep to the richness of what the Lord has in store for us. For as you go deeper in, the richness of the gospel gets sweeter still. Let's pray that the Lord would do a mighty work in us. That we might see signs and wonders in our own hearts and lives as we lean into the message of God's grace. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, would you guide us and lead us as we enter into this study in Exodus and renew our minds and our hearts around the richness of what it is that you have taught us from this, your word, that our hearts might be changed and that our lives might forevermore be found in your presence and the new heavens and the new earth. When we get to that greater Canaan, that new Jerusalem, that you promised will come down out of heaven Uh, robed in an arraignment like a bride, the most beautiful bride ever, to come to our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has covenanted and has committed himself to us for always. Prepare us for that day of his return and meet us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.